right, today we are in Romans 11, 7 through 36, and you're going to stay with me because we're going to get an advanced degree in horticulture, so try to hang in there. I don't want to see any glazed over eyes as you're like, what is he talking about? It'll all come together. I've heard the sermon before, and it's awesome. So Romans 11, 7 through 36, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, he's speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches are broken off and you Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nursing, nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, who will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, 
So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, you are a terrific gardener, and we love you and are so grateful that you grafted us into the branches of life. Be with Gavin as he shares your word with us today. Open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes to your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Gavin, as aforementioned, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege uh, to worship with you here this morning. And uh, as we read this text, we're at the end of our series titled Pure Grace. Um, at this point, we're, we're going to conclude, and then we're going to spend some time looking at Jesus and seeing how it is that God gave us his grace. Uh, and then we're going to be back in Romans uh, for the remainder of the spring. Um, but today, as we read the text, um, I, I would not be surprised if you came and, and you read this with us and you said, what is going on here? Um, because that's still how I feel. Um, and and uh, that is okay, um, because here's what's happening. There, there are three major times in the Bible that someone has basically said to God, what is your plan? Uh, and then what follows each of those times is something really confusing, um, where God says, I am God, here's my plan, and people are like, why well, don't get your plan? And he said, I didn't make the plan so you would get it. Like, I am a friendly God, but my plan is not user-friendly. Um, and, and so, and then that led those three people in those situations, Job, Habakkuk, and Paul, to worship. Not to a lack of trust, but to a trust and a humility that God is good. And so when we look at this text uh, and, and its size, it's been a while since we've approached a text uh, of this um, depth and, and breadth and all of that. Um, you might be like, I don't understand the intricacies of what's going on here. And, and really, I want us all to approach this text today as if God has unveiled his plan, but he has purposely left parts of it shrouded in fog. Uh, and as much as you try to wave it away, it's not going to move because some of this concerns the future. Uh, and oftentimes in the Bible, when something is revealed about the future, we don't get to know about it in its fullness until later. But here's what we, we can gain from today. We're going to gain an understanding that God has planned out our grace. Uh, we're going to look at the awesomeness and the severity of it. Uh, we have a question that is here of, is God faithful to his promises because he promised salvation to this one specific family? So is he going to be faithful to the Jews? Um, and through that, can we trust him? But the number one thing that we're going to look at today is just the depth of who God is. And as verse uh, 33 says, how inscrutable his ways are. 
um, how unexplorable his ways are. Um, like, truly, we know this, right? Uh, we maybe don't like to admit it about God, especially when we're trying to explain God to our friends. Um, we don't want to, we don't want have a question from them and say, well, God's ways are inscrutable. Like, you don't get to know. Ha, ha, ha. Like an eight-year-old that makes up his own rules. Like, when you're, when you're like, play fine with him, he's like, no, I have a shield, and my shield is forever, and now you're dead. Um, and you're like, that's not fair. Um, but there's a reality where we don't understand the depth of, of who God is because he is eternal and big. Um, when I stand on a beach and look at the ocean, I say, in general, I am safe. Um, a tsunami could happen, but I figure there'd be some like sirens and stuff like that. But, but if you took me out on a boat and, and somehow gave me the ability to have a clear bottom and allowed me to see just a portion of the way down into the ocean, uh, I would be terrified. I would be terrified by the depths that I already could see, and I would be more terrified of the blackness that I couldn't see past. Um, if, if you go to the Grand Canyon, uh, it's amazing and big, uh, much bigger than you, and you find one of those safe ledges where you can look out, not one of the wily Coyote ledges, um, where, where you meet a unfortunate and cartoonic end, um, then, then you see, whoa, this is much bigger than I initially thought. And what this chapter is hopefully giving us just a glimpse of, just a, just a glimpse, is how deep the plan of grace by God is. Um, that it is reflected by his own character. And so our, our ultimate conclusion at the end of this chapter needs to be, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Um, because even though we uh, on one level want to know things, on another level, we are drawn to that which cannot be known. Um, we don't go on a hike to, to explore all of creation so that we would understand everything from how the carbon is reacting to the atoms around you to all that. We do it to be in wonder. Um, we don't get married, husband or wife, to avoid mystery. Um, if you do, men, um, you're lying because women are mysterious. Um, and, and women, um, like you married into, like with a guy and you're like, well, he's worse because what he does isn't mysterious, but he doesn't even know why he does what he does. And, and I'm like, yes, it's a mystery. Like, but you still engaged into it or having children and watching them grow. Just there are things in our life that we, we explore that we really have no hope of fully exploring in our lifetime, but it draws us into worship anyway. And that's what God's character is like. And so that's what we're going to look like today is just, oh, the depth of God, oh, the depth of God's mercy, oh, the depth of his riches, his knowledge, his wisdom. That is the thing um, that we're going to walk away with today is, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so to recap what's been going on, that's what, what verses 7 through 10 are about. So just to, to give a, a preface, when it says Gentiles, that just means anyone who is not a, a a Jewish person, not in the, the Jewish nationality. When it says a Jew or Israel, in this context, it means that you are a Jewish person, that you have a Semitic background, um, and that you are Jewish. So that's, that's what's going on here. And for the last couple of chapters, Paul has been asking the question, what happens to the Israelites? And he starts it with, oh, anguish. I don't get it. 
the Israelites were the people of God. They received the promises. They received the prophecies about Jesus. They got the Bible thousands of years before we did, or like us, you know, non-Jewish folk did. And I don't get why they have just turned their back on God. And in the, the two chapters before this, and a little bit here again, he talks about why. So if you look at verse 7, it says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And so it says that first they failed to obtain what they were seeking, and that part of the reason is because God hardened their hearts. Um, and that makes us cringe a little bit. We're, we're inclusive. Like, we don't want people to be excluded But in the plan of God, he chose willfully as part of a grand plan to harden their hearts. But the other reason is because they thought that they could earn their righteousness from God. And so he quotes a couple of Psalms. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. You know, at at stores, you can buy plaques with verses on it to put above kitchen tables. Um, I dare one of you to make this one and give it to, like, your grandma. Like, and and just be like, I just wanted to give you a verse, grandma, that had to do with eating and, like, would really encourage people as they came to the kitchen table. Here it is. Let their table become a snare and a trap. Um, What is going on there? Here's what's going on. Um, they looked at the law and they said, we can earn our righteousness. Um, and so they pursued the law, not to pursue God, but to pursue their own salvation. It, it's sort of like, they were like, I am going to earn my own house. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to buy lots of furniture, lots of furniture. If I own enough furniture, I'm going to have a house. No, like, can you picture just somebody with a giant U-Haul just filled with couches? And, and you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, just trying to save up enough couches so that I can have a house. And, and, and if you were like, that's not how it works. And, and they said, no, it is. I, I read the instructions. This is how you get a house. And you would hopefully say, as just a kind human being, no, that's not how it works. Um, but even more so in this analogy, God is the one who gives salvation, gives the house, gives himself. The law are things done in response to his salvation. The, the Jews missed it entirely. The Jews, most of them, still miss it entirely. They're still like, no, you pursue the law and God is pleased with you. And that's not how it works. But it's not just, it's not just the Jews. Um, it's also us. And there's a, a popular show on TV right now called The Good Place. Um, it's current, so I'll try to avoid spoilers. But the, the gist of the show is she dies, goes to the good place, but she's not a good person. And so she spends the whole show trying to prove that she can change and become a good person. That's not how salvation works. Uh, and, and Paul is going to start touching on how salvation actually works is just out of the depths of the riches of God and the depths of his grace. So in verse 11, and last week we talked about this, that the Jews aren't totally excluded. Notice that it says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. And so God, for himself, saves in every people group. 
Uh, it doesn't matter what that people group is, he saves out of it. And so throughout history, even though the Jews have historically said, no, Jesus is not the Messiah, there have been Jews that have said, no, actually he is Messiah. And this passage says it's because God yanked them from their unbelief. That's what happened. So let's look at verse 11. So God's hardening of the Jewish hearts are not total. He is saving some. Now, verse 11, God's hardening of the the Jewish hearts is not final. I asked, did they stumble in order that they might not fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle or a missionary or a sent person to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry, what I do, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection meant the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So right there, he gives an analogy saying, if the Jewish disobedience meant that the gospel went to all the Gentiles so that there would be people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language that would be saved, then when they believe in God, that would be as if somebody just rose from the dead. Uh, that is how powerful it would be if, if they are be going to be saved. And we're going to be coming back to that in a second. But notice what it talked about in the beginning where it said that they were, their trespass meant that salvation went to the Gentiles. That there's a reality that something that the Jews did um, caused the world to hear the gospel. We can speculate. We can say what those things might be. But really, it's convoluted because first you have that they, they um, were, were part and parcel of, of Jesus being crucified. You also have the reality of the sovereignty of God that a century before Jesus came on the scene, there was a massive Jewish revival that meant that a whole Mediterranean Sea was looking for God. Um, like There's all sorts of things that this could mean. But what Paul is pointing out is God's plan was for the Jews to disobey so the Gentiles would hear the gospel. And now he's going to go into it to us. You're like, man, what does this have to do with me? Here it is. He's saying, to you Gentiles, keep this in mind. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Okay, so you know that video that we've been showing at the beginning of the service for the last five, six weeks? Um, If you've been here, like there's this video. Now you're like, oh, grafting, that's what that is. Um, So it's it's coming from this verse. And what he's he's saying is the root is is the promise of salvation. It is um, everything that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the, the coming of Jesus as our savior. It is the root of our salvation. And he is saying that we as wild olive branches have been grafted into that olive tree. Now, olive trees are these huge gnarly trees and cultivated ones live for thousands of years. They live through grafting other cultivated branches onto that tree. And they bear fruit, and their fruit are olives, right? Olive trees bear olives. Great. Um, Now, in this analogy, he's saying 
that us, a wild olive shoot, was grafted into this tree. And that's interesting because wild olive shoots are not particularly useful. They don't make olives. In fact, most of the things, trees in our life without cultivation don't actually bear fruit that we can eat without dying. Um, like, look it up. It's crazy. Like, look up ancestors to, like, corn and avocados. And, like, through cultivation, those things bear fruit. But he's saying here that God took us, a plant of no significance, and grafted us into the nourishing root, the root of life. And he did this for us in mercy, not because we did anything. And you see this especially here in verse 19. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So again, we have a mentality in America that says, yeah, but God had a special place for me. Like, you know, whether we're, we're guys or girls, we're like, I'm the princess that the prince has been going for. Like, I'm the one that God has come to rescue. And, and so, like, clearly, like, I must be special. There must be something special about me because God broke off branches off of the cultivated tree so that I could be brought into this family and bring all the wealth of my awesomeness and works keeping. And God just wanted a little bit of Gentile zest to his Jewish tree. That's why I'm a Christian. Um, But look at what Paul says because he's just continuing the offensiveness of this text. That is true. So first, Paul affirms, yes, God broke off some of the branches from the natural tree. Then he says this, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. That word is a phobia, actual fear. Does that word mean like, just like, oh, you know, like we respect God? No, fear. Um, It's a car is about to hit you on the freeway and you just miss it. And you're safe, but you're trembling. You're afraid fear. That God did break them off because of their unbelief. Because to God, what matters is that, that you believe in his son. It's not who you are. It's not what you bring to the table, which is nothing. It's not who you were born into what family. Um, Like it is simply faith. And so we stand by faith. Other branches were broken off because they did not believe. And we are grafted into the nourishing tree through faith. Now, let's look at this next verse. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That's a little frightening. But it's a reality. You can't just say, great, I'm a Christian now, and then just be like, I'm going to go do my own life and and not live in fear of God or, or that. Like, there's a reality that it changes you. Just like being grafted into a different tree is going to change that branch's life forever. But look at this next verse. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. There's, there's a contradiction here that, that doesn't seem very strong, but it is, which it's, it goes like this. On the one hand, God was severe towards those who have fallen. But more importantly, God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Uh, and what he's saying here is, um, don't despair. Don't Think that God will not be kind to you. He, what, he is severe to those who do not believe. But because of the riches of the mercy and the kindness of God, you stand grafted in. Not because of anything you did. 
And then he says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And so you might be thinking, well, what if they repent? God says, then I'll graft them back in. And he even says, you were cut from what is nature, a totally different tree, a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree. So how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And so in this context, he's saying, of course, if the, if the Jewish people who are actually from this tree repent, of course I will graft them back in. Of course I will. And so this is a lot, right? Can we say Amen. Is that a lot? I'm not crazy? Okay, good. I was a little worried. The nine o'clock was looking at me like, yeah, I get this. We're, like, let's just keep going. Um, all right, so application. There's, there's not a lot because it's about the depth and the mercy and the riches of God. But there's still how we respond to that depth of riches of mercy. And so here are some things that we can realize. First, that we have been saved that we are loved, that God loves us, that the action of grafting us into the tree was an act of love. It also means that you have about as much control over your salvation as a branch has to decide to be grafted to another tree. How much is that, church? Zero, maybe? Like, it's not like the branches are kind of like, oh, great, here comes the farmer. Maybe if I can open up my flowers? <laughs> That's not what happens. Normally the branches are grafted on because they're not healthy. Um, So if anything, it makes even less sense here that God would graft us in. But he did because he loves us. And God is the author of grace. So he doesn't have to ask for anyone's permission. There's a a tree that has been created. There's a cool video. Um, Ashley Clendenin, she's our, our director of family ministries here. This guy created this fruit with, uh, this tree with 40 fruits. Um, and farmers came and criticized him and said, now you're going to have to harvest all summer. And after they said that, I was like, yeah, that is kind of crazy. Why are you doing that? That's, all, that's so much work. Like, but he said, I don't know. To me, it was a piece of art, um, which shows right there what happens to the grafted tree is totally up to the grafter. What happens to us in grace is totally up to God. Now, does that mean we don't have a response? Absolutely it does. That's what the rest of Romans is all about. Um, but it means that salvation is from him and through him and to him. It also means that we don't look down on the branches that have been broken off and we, we don't base our Christianity on the branches that are around us because likely they are better than us. How's that sound? <laughs> um, but, but what I mean by that is this. If you, if you base your Christianity off of how you are doing in comparison to everyone else, I guarantee you you'll find better people. And I guarantee you you'll find people who are broken off. And I guarantee you, you find you'll, you'll find a branch that's more wild and crazy than you. Um, if you focus on that, you will have missed the root of our faith, which is Jesus. You don't want to do that. And in, in fact, that leads to maybe the most important thing is, do we live our faith in a way that we want to make others jealous of it. And, and, and here's where it gets real for me. I would just easily say how often in my life that there's nothing in my faith that should be, make anybody jealous. That, like, that there's nothing in it that looks like I should 
be celebrating or like boasting to other people. And we know that what Paul is talking about here isn't like making the Jews jealous by being like, hey Jews, look at this bacon, nom, nom, nom. But you want Jesus now because I have bacon, nom, nom, nom. Like that's, that's not making God, that's not making the Jews jealous. That's not making anybody jealous. The only thing in our faith that can make people jealous is Christ. The only thing in our faith that can make people jealous is the gospel. Because we can't, we're just some crazy wild olive branch. The other wild olive branches can't because they're just some crazy wild olive branches. The cultivated branches can't because they look good, but the only reason they look good is because they've been attached to Jesus. That they've been attached to the promises of God. And so we live in acknowledgement and worship of the depth of the riches of the mercy of God. And through that, we make people jealous by exalting Jesus and not ourselves. But then, so that resolves our pride, but we still have to ask the question, is God going to be faithful to the promises he made? So let's look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. We already don't, Paul, but go for it. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so what he means by that is Israel has been made into all of the other nations. There was a time where the whole nation of Israel was under the covenant of God and believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now God has turned them into all the other nations to where there are elect inside of them, just like any other nation, but the whole of them are hardened. And God did that so that salvation would come to the Gentiles. But look at this, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, What's being promised by that word until is on verse 26. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what he's saying is that there is a day in our still future where the whole of Jews believe in Jesus. Um, When will that happen? I don't know. Uh, Why? I don't know. Oh, I know why. It's so that he would show that he's faithful to his promises and he's God. Um, How will it happen? I don't know. Um, Because I I know that it can't be anything that we teach wrongly in America. I know that it's not that there are two salvations. Because there's only one stump here. So they all have to believe in Jesus. And there's no loophole. Um, I know that sometimes it's taught that that they're going to be the ones that end up having to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them. But here it says, not until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So is this happening towards the end of time? We don't know. Not important. Because if you, if you go too crazy with biblical prophecies, the one thing you'll have to learn about biblical prophecies is you don't get it until the end of, of the scene. Um, like, I don't care who you are, I know there are people that are like, I knew Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. <laughs> Maybe, but I, I think you, might, you probably missed it. Most of us were taken in. Um, but there were signs when you went back, of course. But that's hindsight. That doesn't count. Um, and, and in the same way, here he's saying that he is going to keep his promise. That's what matters. Oh, the depth of the mercy and the riches and the wisdom of God, that he is going to keep his promise to the family of Abraham. So, he says this in verse 28. As regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, back then, they had more clout. They were witnessing in a lot of Jewish contexts, and they were actively opposing people knowing about Jesus. So, in a real way, they were enemies of people hearing the gospel. 
But as regards God's plan, his election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. All right. Um, this sounds vindictive in verse 32, but what it is, is it's, it's God saying, this is my plan of salvation. At one point, the Jews all believed and the Gentiles did not. Then I flipped it. And through that flipping, the Gentiles heard the gospel. And there will come a day where they will become jealous of what the Gentiles have received, which is their birthright, their inheritance all along, and then they will be saved, and then my family will be complete. It's, it's like this. In Luke 15, there's a story of two sons. The youngest says, Dad, I hate you. Give me all your money. You're dead to me. Uh, the father agrees, gives him all the money. He goes and spends all his money um, and then comes back ashamed and says, I'm just gonna ask for his mercy and ask that I can be a servant in his house. His father runs out, embraces him, receives him back into the family and celebrates. But at the end of the story, the older brother says, what the heck? He left and spent all your money. I've been awesome in here and taking care of the farm and I haven't uh, made you upset. There's nothing I did that made you upset. I did everything right. I, 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 I don't care if I have a relationship with you either. Looked very different. The one ran away blatantly. The other one was pursuing works as a basis to get the promise. Neither of them cared about the relationship they had with the father. And the story ends with the father outside the party with the older brother pleading for him to change his mind and come back in. What this is saying is that in the depth of the mercy and the riches of God, one day the older brother is coming back into the party. So is it all of them? No, probably not. A lot of times when the Bible says all, they just mean the majority, all, the nation, the whole. And do they just get in to get in? No, they have to repent and believe in Jesus and they have to repent of their works righteousness. If they don't, they can't be Christians. Um, but they will be saved. And that's the promise we have from God. And if God keeps his promises, as people, we like to avoid commitments in general, especially when we're in a situation where we feel like we can't, um, like that, that something could hurt us. And the fact that God keeps his promise to the most stubborn of families on earth, that's God's words, not mine. Um, Deuteronomy 9. Um, so the, uh, that God keeps his promises to them, it means he's gonna keep his promises to us. And it means that we view our relationship with God seriously because he's not going to abandon us and he's grafted us into the tree. So we, if we've been avoiding baptism for one or five or 10 or 20 years, we get baptized because God's not gonna turn his back on you. If he's calling us to obedience on something, we trust that it's because he's good even if we can't see the fullness of his plan. Because honestly, and this is what we're gonna talk about in the next part, he won't even show you the fullness of his plan. And I don't know why, because he won't show us that either. Um, he's just God and he does what he wants. Um, but he loves you and he invites you to repent. And that's the third thing that we're gonna talk about is we've looked at the depth of God's grace, the depth of the riches of his mercy and his plan, but he himself is big. And in verse 33, it says, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 
No one. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. And then in the original, in Job, um, that verse can also mean who can challenge God that he would even answer him. Um, And it's in the context of a monster that God created. And God says, you can't even challenge my monster. What makes you think you can step up to me? Um, For from him is salvation and through him is our salvation. And to him is the glory for our salvation. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, now here's our challenge, church. My challenge, your challenge. Um, and maybe to a degree, I'm just going to be speaking directly to the men. Um, if God is going to be your savior, you must bow to him as creator. Because he is God. And he establishes the rules. And here when it tells us about his salvation, it's not so that we would question him. God is not like Dumbledore from Harry Potter, just this wise old wizard who's really powerful but makes mistakes. And one day you get to just yell at him and he gets to say, I know, I'm sorry, I super messed up there. Um, He's not someone that gets a job evaluation from you. He is God. Um, me and Pastor Shea had the opportunity the other, uh, like, it was a while ago now, but this guy came to the church and immediately launched off to, if there's a God, why is there suffering in the world? If there's a God, why didn't he save this person? If there's a God, this. And I want to answer that, and I think there are good and loving answers um, to all of those questions, ones that we don't have time for today. But interestingly enough, whenever those questions come to God in Scripture, his only answer is, I sit in the heavens and do what I want. Um... And that bothers us because we want explanation. And, and part of us wants a God that will answer to us. But, but that's not who God is. If that's how we treat God, we've missed it. It'd be the same as going and hiking to a waterfall and hiking there for three hours and being like, ah, man, I hate the way the water bounces off of that one rock. Like, can we move that one rock? Oh, like, why are there bees everywhere? I hate this. Like, why is that waterfall the way it is? Why can't it be an ocean or a tree or a mountain? Obviously crazy. But if we go to God and say, why can't he be an employee or someone that answers to me? It's as crazy because it's not even in his nature. But that doesn't mean that we can't be drawn to wonder at him. And interestingly enough, it doesn't mean that he doesn't want relationship with you. You know, oh man, the the Proverbs say that it is the glory of God to conceal things. Like God has concealed himself in this book. He has concealed himself in the person of Jesus. He He has made himself available to you, but there are mysteries that he has invited you to plumb because it is the glory of man to search things out. But know that there are riches that we will never get to see. Job even says that God has put some jewels in the earth that we will never know or see and no light will shine on them. The only reason they're there is because God wants them to be there, that he wants to see them. And when God encounters his people for the first time in his holiness, like we are broken by sin, we need a savior. It's why this grace matters. It's because outside of that grace, we are broken off from life and we will not have life. And the first time God shows up, 
it was with fire and wind and an earthquake and it was on a mountain. And God said, if even a goat touches the mountain, kill it and don't let it come back to your camp because my good is so good, it's toxic to your bad. My good is so good, it's toxic to your sin and it will kill you. But then the second time God shows up in a big way like that, it's the same thing. There's fire, there's an earthquake, there's wind. But this time, instead of on a mountain, it's actually on his people. Signifying that God has taken the divide away for his people between himself and his people because he's not gonna let sin separate his people from himself. And so through Jesus then, we are invited to climb and explore the canyons and the mountains and the rivers of God. Um, and by his grace and because he is eternal and something way beyond us, there will be fogged and obscured areas. There will be canyons you cannot descend. There will be hills you cannot climb. And that you will, not just in this life, but for eternity with God, not plumb the depths of who he is. And that is beautiful. As a beautiful promise that we will always get to explore. I was just talking to Jim Perkins. He's a, an, a pastor in training here, and he uh, works for the Department of Wildlife. And he said that he, he's out on the hills all the time, um, and he never takes the same route twice because he knows that in those hills, just shifting his vehicle 10 feet to the right or the left could change everything. Just going behind one little enclave would reveal petroglyphs that haven't been seen for thousands of years. Like that he knows that he needs to traverse. And, and in the same way, God is a constant, but we will never see fully who he is um, in terms of his depth and his wisdom. But I will say this, you have seen the fullness of his love because 1 John 4 says, this is love that Jesus died for our sins. He said, in this, the love of God was revealed, that Jesus came and died for us, died for our sin, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know the holy God, so that we would be grafted into life. And that's the good news that we celebrate on Good Friday and Easter, is the joy that our Savior came. You know, in verse 26, it says, the deliverer will come from Zion. That verse actually says in, in the Psalms, that deliverer will come to Zion. Like he, he already came to Jerusalem, is the thing. But Paul is saying that heavenly Zion, our king is coming back. And he's going to bring to himself a people that he loves, has died for, has planned to save all along. Because he is God and he wants to save them. And the only thing we're going to be able to say at his throne is to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now you're like, is that it? No, it's not because we must plumb the depths of God. But then in a few weeks, we're going to go to Romans 12 where Paul starts to talk about how we can respond. But we'll just close with this where it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that there is no thing that we ever do in our Christian faith that we don't do without looking back and remembering the great mercies that God has done to save us. And with that, God, we pray that you would save us. If there are seekers or skeptics, God, I, I hope that they know that we are at least as offended by the sovereignty of God as they might have been. Um, but I pray that that would draw us to worship even more um, because 
again, you are good, but we do not understand you. But it's in the depths of your own wisdom and love that you chose to save us, even though we bring absolutely nothing to the table. And so truly, a million times thank you. Give us the opportunity to walk in that faith, to rejoice and to live our lives knowing that we have a God who has saved us. In your name.